All right, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Welcome to The Loyalist Connections. Established 1783. Today on the Loyalist Connections podcast, we're going to talk about Whitney Pier, Nova Scotia. The Pier. The Pier. Whitney Pier is located in Sydney, Nova Scotia, roughly four and a half hours away from Halifax. If you're driving from Yarmouth to Sydney, it's roughly eight hours. The pier runs along the eastern shore of the Sydney Harbour. It is geographically isolated from Sydney, separated by the steel plants, railway tracks, and Muggas Creek. It was settled around 1901. The town name is derived from Henry Melville Whitney, an industrialist who created the Dominion Iron Steel Company, which built steel, like it's a steel plant in the area. So interesting thing about this uh, area is that this... Whitney Pier area highlights the Caribbean wave of the black migration to Nova Scotia. Immigrants were recruited to come to Cape Breton in pursuit of heavy industrial work, and they settled in the Whitney Pier area. So there was people from the Caribbean, but there was also Americans that like migrated there. And then later we saw um, like a migration from the Guysboro Trackety area with black loyalists. In 1913, there was a population of 8,000 in Whitney Pier. As of 2016, the total population of Whitney Pier has declined to 4,600. If you're wondering about the African Nova Scotian or the people of African descent that would have been in Whitney Pier in the 1920s, there was roughly 600. And as of 2016, the black population was roughly 355 black individuals. Wow. What is the Bob Marley connection to Whitney Pier? I believe it's with Marcus Garvery. Yeah. But we're going to have to ask our special guest to tell us a little bit more about that. The plant employed thousands of workers, but there was a labor shortage. The plant recruited multiple skilled trades globally to meet the demands for the steel. Also, like a side note, a driving force behind the rationale for immigrants from the Caribbean was the extreme conditions in the plant. Now, I find this interesting. So what's interesting is that the shift, because of the conditions for the recruitment, encompassed the theme of trying to find people that could adjust to the extreme heats. So that's why they went down in the States. And there was, uh, I think they went to, was it Alabama? Alabama. To get blacks that have worked in these extreme environments. Right. So that makes sense. And okay. then the Caribbean? Right. You know, if we look at the the Whitney Pier itself, I always think about Cape Breton and I think about the steel plant, but also coal mining, things of that nature. I'm wondering specifically what was the employment opportunities like for these individuals that came here. Again, this is a new environment for them. We talked a little bit about working in the steel plant. So I'm interested in seeing what the jobs looked like for a lot of these individuals when they first arrived here. Absolutely. Like we guarantee there's an element of industrial work highlighted by the steel plant. But was there anything else? That's right. Yeah. And racism. I wonder what sort of racism, segregation, 
overt or systemic, what would that would look like in that community at that time? Yeah, that's interesting. It's roughly like the 1900s, right? So, you know, we're more talking modern. more modern. So what would it have looked like mm-hmm. in the community itself? Yeah. Um, you know, this like, huge wave of Caribbean mm-hmm. <laughs> immigrants come here, right? So I can only imagine what they encountered. And one of the most interesting things for me is the central gathering spots again. Yes. How was religion and the church intertwined in the community? Absolutely. And like Baptist was big. Like we know that from a lot of the other communities, but was there anything else? Could have been. I heard there was an African Orthodox church in the area. I guess it's still standing to this day. Huh. And then the black families, where they were, where they went, and why. That's right. Yeah, and this is the thing, again, the reoccurring theme, the intermigration from that area. Where did they go specifically? From what my understanding, there was also black communities in North Sydney, Mm -hmm. Glace Bay, as well as New Waterford, and not just in Whitney Pier. So uh, it would be interesting to shed some light on some of those other communities as well. Well, in the composition, like were they part of the Caribbean wave or were they part of the black loyalist migration or intermigration? I don't have the answer. Oh, I know. But maybe our uh, special guest will. And now to introduce our special guest for this episode, Bradley Shepard, who was born and raised in Whitney Pier and still calls the pier his home. Thanks for being here. Appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here and join the Loyalist Connections podcast. To start, let's talk about how you're connected to Whitney Pierre. Sure, fellas. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and to learn from you folks. So I was born and raised in Whitney Pierre. My father's from Whitney Pierre. His ancestry is Bayesian. And my mother's actually from Waikagama, which is a small community located in Cape Breton on the shores of the Bador Lakes. So my history basically starts, you know, being born here, but it goes a lot deeper than that. As you probably know, a lot of black people came to Whitney Pier at the start of the steel plant. Okay. And the steel plant was basically the economic engine of the community. Okay. And so Whitney Pier itself is located on the shores of the Sydney Harbor. And at one point, you had a large contingent of people from all over the world come to Whitney Pier. And so my family came from Barbados, but before that, there was a large influx of American Blacks that were brought up to help stand up the steel plant, i.e. they brought skilled iron workers from the United States and cities like Pittsburgh, for example, brought them up to do work in the steel plant. But what had happened was they weren't necessarily welcomed here in Sydney and Cape Breton. And we're talking late 1800s, early 1900s. And so a lot of them ended up returning, but to keep the plant running, they brought in a huge influx of immigrants. So you had people from Barbados, you had Polish, Ukrainian, Hungarian, folks from all over the world came here to work in the steel plant. And so the Bayesian contingency, when they arrived, they arrived to do, let's say the less desirable work. Okay, so they would work in the blast furnace as opposed to the hearth, where the European 
colleagues would work. And so at that time, it was pretty clear that society was unequal in many forms, including in the workplace. So, But they stuck it out. You had the Bayesian community here in Whitney Pier, and then you had an influx come from the mainland, namely Guysborough County, and they made it home. One thing you mentioned about not being well-received in that sense when they first arrived, what was that like for them? What did they encounter in terms of some of the issues when they first arrived here? Well, I, I think it was just a sign of the times, even though we're still seeing it today. Systemic racism inequality and misunderstanding runs deep. It's almost part of the fabric of our society. And at that time, it wasn't hidden. It was very forthcoming and outright. And so a lot of people that came here at the time, yes, they worked lower level jobs, but they also created a sense of community within community, if that makes sense. Because there were so many different ethnic groups and they were kind of setting up shop or you know, um, deepening their roots in the community. We had to do the same thing because we weren't allowed to pray at certain churches or congregate at certain churches or have social events at certain halls. So what the Black community in Whitney Pier, what they did is they set up their own. So the African Orthodox Church, for example, in Whitney Pier was a place for Black people to pray and congregate. The Menelik Hall, which is a hall in Whitney Pier, was built by the hands of folks from this community so they could have a place to socialize. The United Negro Improvement Association, which is out in Glace Bay, it's under the Garveyism, the Marcus Garvey model. Right. Mm. Um, and if you're familiar with the song Redemption Song, Bob Marley took lyrics from Marcus Garvey's speech that he made in Glace Bay at the UNIA, right? Never knew so, that. That's, yeah, there's lots that's of That's pretty powerful. Groups. Yeah. Um, you talked about this earlier, Brad, the Universal Negro Improvement Association. I did a little research. I was a little bit jaded in the sense that I thought it was just in Whitney Pier, but you mentioned that that covered Glace Bay as well, too. Just talking about that, the Universal Negro Improvement Association and what it's meant to those communities specifically. So Glace Bay is a town, um, it actually was at one time the largest town in Nova Scotia, but it's about 25 minutes from Whitney Pier. And so just to give you context, you have Sydney, Glace Bay, New Waterford. They're all surrounding towns, coastal communities, and each one of them have their own history, I guess we'll call it. So we've talked a lot about the steel plant, in particular, how that influenced uh, Whitney Pier. And so in Glace Bay, New Waterford, and Dominion, it wasn't steel production that was the economic engine. It was mining, specifically coal. And to a lesser extent, there was a large fishing contingent there as well because mm -hmm. they're, they're coastal communities. And so like the steel plant, mining drew a lot of people from other parts of the world, notably from Caribbean countries and rural Black communities. And so folks settled sporadically throughout these different areas. What makes Glace Bay stand out is, one, it had a larger Black population, but two was the presence of Marcus Garvey in the the late 20s. And so, um, and I think I mentioned this, Garvey's whole purpose was, he called it Zionism, is that folks should um, congregate and move back to Africa. 
mm. where we would be treated with respect and fair and, and create our own economy and so on and so forth. So that was his biggest thing was Garveyism was like Zionism, returning to the motherland. And so he traveled all over North America. But in Glace Bay, I believe it's the last UNIA. And as you mentioned, Sean, the United Negro Improvement Association. I believe it's the last UNIA hall in Canada. Right. And so, yeah, and I read so, that somewhere. You know, the residual history still lives here. Hence the reason I still enjoy living here. We still have a, a group of professionals. We're called Service Providers Network. And that includes myself as a, working in post-secondary. We have teachers, principals, government employees, all Black, that congregates monthly to still do what we can do to support our communities. Um, and they're, they're from Glace Bay, New Waterford, Sydney, all over the place. It's all over. That's interesting. Yeah. And so blue collar towns with a lot of history. Nice. I guess that highlights the, the sense of community and why it's still so strong, right? Mm -hmm. Keep it in mind, too, that these communities were definitely opposed to each other. You know how small towns are, right? Don't go there. Don't go over here. Um, yeah. But, you know, on a larger <laughs> landscape, you know, if we're sitting in, in Ontario or Alberta, we're all Cape Breteners. Yeah. And we all love home. And we all have similar stories of that hard, blue collar work ethic, you know, that continues today. So the African Orthodox Church, what I realized is that's the only African Orthodox Church in Canada. Can you talk about what that means to Whitney Pierre? Sure. So it's my understanding the church grew out of the desire for Black people to congregate and pray, right? It's my understanding that before the African Orthodox Church was built, they used to try to pray at what was called St. Albans, Presbyterian, I believe. And, uh, you know, they weren't necessarily welcome. Black phones weren't welcome at that church. So they, in turn, built their own. And the African Orthodox Church made its way to Cape Breton by way of Brooklyn, New York. And I can't remember the gentleman's name. I want to say Father Francis, but it might have been before him, brought that to Cape Breton. And so the church itself, as it stands today, was in a former steel shed right? That was brought down from a property in the pier and brought down to the black community. Again, those first three streets I talked about, Tupper Street, Lawyer Street, and Hankard Street, uh, and Curry's Lane and Frederick Street, I can't forget them. And so that's where the church stands today. And, you know, it's always been important, not only for people to congregate and pray, but it's kind of been the backbone of the community in a number of ways. And one of them that stands out to me is uh, the Caribbean Festival they have every year. And so it was basically a celebration of the Caribbean roots in Whitney Pier. And so the church would put on a big uh, a bazaar, I guess you want to call it, music, stuff for kids, face painting. And it, I'm telling you, man, it, it, at one time, as a young person, it was the highlight of the summer because you get the Calypso going, yes. you know, everybody's having a good time. And then uh, the evening, the band plays, and it was just a real dope time. It sounds like... Uh, so the church the church has been everything to a lot of people. You know, I remember going to Weymouth Falls for the Weymouth Falls reunions. And it's funny, in each individual community, there's always these little festivals and things of that nature that allow you to get together. You got the Africville, mm -hmm. Beachville festivals. Yeah. And this stuff has to be intentional, right? Like, you know... We used to have something called the United Mission Picnic, and I didn't even talk about the mission in all of this, but the mission was essentially, it was ran by a gentleman from Dominion, parents were Canadian, but his wife is Bayesian. He ran, his name is Lemuel Skeet, and he ran the uh, United Mission Youth Center 
which was, you know, he'd get public money to put on all this stuff for kids. And I don't want to call it, it was, wasn't a daycare center by any means. Well, they had a daycare, but it was more of teaching kids different values and things at an early age. And a lot of people from the pair went through that, right? So we all had that shared story of going through the mission, but there were so many different things growing up here that built people to be great. That's why I think there's a lot of successful people from Whitney Pier uh, in the world today. Uh, when they came here, did they acquire land or property? Uh, like, what was the ownership situation like back then for land? Well, that's a really good question. So like you see in many communities, sometimes we were came, we didn't have a ton of control. Like if you look at um, the rocky lands of the Preston area, or mm -hmm. even if you look at the reservation systems throughout Nova Scotia and in Canada, sometimes the land wasn't the most desirable. And so in Whitney Pier in particular, we did own parcels of land, but we also were part of the company, i.e. company houses, right? Uh. And so um, you had a split of both. And I do know, for example, to this day, there's still plots of land in the pier that have names of families that are no longer here. You know what I'm saying? So, or vote migrated, we'll say that. And so I think there was a split, you know, you had ownership, you had people that lived on company, company land in company homes. And even when you drive through the pier in Sydney today, there's still a remnants of these homes. They still exist, which is very interesting, right? Mm -hmm. One of the things that you mentioned too, that was a theme that I think we've been seeing in a couple of our last discussions was the fact that some of these workers were extremely skilled. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. Like, so even looking back, if you look back, if you if you're in the middle 1800s, of course we were skilled. We were laborers. We're you know slaves. I always laugh because we made the best out of nothing. You look at the most popular foods now. You know, collie greens, chitlins. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. different things. But we made it the best. So we were, we're used to that, right? And so it was yeah. no different taking that skill set from the plantation into other labor, other jobs, I guess we'll call it. And making steel was one of them. Yeah. And we talked about the resourcefulness, right? Like, mm -hmm. and I keep saying this, we have to remember that these conditions that they're coming from, let's say slavery into these other conditions, which weren't far removed in that sense. Mm -hmm. So the stress, the environment to be able to be resourceful and bring your skill set and still contribute and do your job well, because let's be honest here, if we start talking about the relationship between Dominion Iron and Steel Company, I mean, without the influx of immigrants, it would have failed. If you look at any institution in North America, in modern history, it could have failed without us. You look at Citadel Hill in Halifax. Yep. You know, you look at many cities in the United States where we were instrumental in standing that up. And, you know, quote unquote, on our backs. You know what I'm trying to yes. say? So that resilience to me is innate in Black people. And I think that's why we succeed in the face of adversity. Because we're Absolutely. So we're so used to carrying that heavy load. That's right. How was the community defined back then? The closeness, the interaction with, uh, you know, kind of day-to-day -day life. How was it defined specifically? You know, in talking to elders in the community, I would say that resilience would probably be one of the words I hear the most. Taking lemons and making lemonade, so to speak. Uh -huh. Low-wage jobs, kind of packed on two to three streets in the community. Um, and that's another thing about Whitney Pier. Because it was so diverse, there was actually quote-unquote lines drawn in the community. So the Black community Whitney Pier lived on the first 
three streets next to the steel plant, right? So they had, e- mm-hmm. you know, access to work or easy way to get to work. But the people in those communities, within those three streets, you had, you know, a hotel, you had uh, grocery stores, you had butchers, you had restaurants, you had corner stores, you know, you didn't have to go anywhere bars, you know, you didn't have to go anywhere to kind of get a slice of life, right? And that to me was everything. And that demonstrates resilience in the face of adversity. Coming here, setting up shop, and to a degree keeping to themselves simply mm-hmm. because at that time social groups they stayed within their own, right? Yeah, it was um, siloed. It was siloed. Correct. It, it so correct. therefore it's like segregation. Uh yeah. what it was it public? Like was it like known like this is where this is where the blacks are, you know, don't go there or. Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, I, I, I'm laughing at the don't go there, but yeah, it was 100%. So, and this is the, this is the, the beauty of the pair. We were a cultural mosaic, right? You had all these different groups, but the lines were clearly drawn, right? right. Yes. But when you leave the pier, yep. you're from the pier. So you had people, white people, black people, once you leave the pier, they would align, if that makes any sense. You know what I'm trying to say? It's like in yep. the pier, you know, they didn't really talk. But you go to town, and it's like, oh, because you're from the pier, people will, uh, people respected that. You know what I'm saying? Wow. Well, you were talking about as well too. There is the entrepreneurial background, right? You know, to be again back to the resourcefulness kind of topic. You know, you're you're, you're providing for your community in that sense by creating these restaurants, shops, and things of that nature. Something that mm-hmm. you can keep community based and call your own. So That's right. Like, how would you uh, describe growing up like in the pier? With oh man, growing up in the pier was the bomb. It was <laughs> excellent, man. No, I'm serious, and I'll tell you why. Because you know, so I was born in '83, so you know, my parents had me fairly young. Um, I had two siblings and we grew up in a low income neighborhood. And so there was always love. My parents, we didn't have much money. We didn't have a fancy house. We had no mm-hmm. car, but man, we had a lot of love. Mm-hmm. And what made it really special was the extended family, right? So aunts, great aunts, great uncles, cousins, barbecues, cookouts, Sunday chicken and rice, mm. you know, all these traditions that we had growing up. And, you know, the chicken and rice is a Bayesian thing, right? That was brought up from Barbados, but just having that sense of community, social safety nest. If you were out too late and someone saw you, they're calling mom and dad and you're getting your butt whooped when you got home kind of thing. Um, (laughs) Just the little things, man, the little things made it great. And given the change in time from when we were growing up to like Mm -hmm. present day, like has that sense of community for you changed? Well, I think, you know, as time passes, people pass, right? Okay. Traditions pass. And so to answer your question, it's still that part of like the Sunday dinners is still a vibrant thing. Um, okay. And I should probably backtrack just a little bit. So when the Bayesians came up, they brought with them their culture, their food. And so what had happened in our community, and my father tells me these stories. He said, Bradley, when I was a kid, he's like, you could go to the neighbor's <laughs> house with a bowl and $2 and then fill it up with rice, pigtail and sauce, you know, mm. all, all these Bayesian dishes. And so I'm there. Yeah, <laughs> pigtails. So, say no pigtail? more. Yeah, man. Yeah. I'm there. <laughs> and so my old man actually, and I'm very, very grateful for him in this respect, is he made chicken and rice every Sunday for us, and he he could cook, man. And so growing up every Sunday, waking up and smelling that coming through the house, it was like, yeah, boy. And so, um, and there was a lot of different households that did that. 
And so as time passes, right, oat migration is a big thing. You know, a lot of mm-hmm. people my age now live in Airdrie or Fort St. John or, or somewhere, right? They don't live here. And so what happens is you're seeing a thin oat. So one of the things you just described was that oat migration to Fort St. John, Airdrie. And what that highlights is just, you know, a move with those industrial skills to go to major industrial centers where they can continue working and creating the environment for their family. I think Sean and I both experience, you know, that migration. We've all kind of had that similar path, right? You know, I taught English as a second language in South Korea after I graduated and then lived out West for a little bit. And Larice, you lived out West. But one thing you mentioned, Brad, which is really interesting, is the fact that those oat migrations, they're kind of losing their sense of identity. And I say this about, like, I use my mom's family as an example. She came from Canning, a family of 15, but they all moved away. So they're living in places like Montreal or Toronto. And then you lose that loyalist connection to your community as well, too. So, you know, there's a whole generation out there that it does have ties with Nova Scotia and, you know, the Black Lotus and the three-wave migration to Nova Scotia. Indeed. And, and you know, it's important for our listeners to understand that. And, and I, I'm sure they know this already, but Nova Scotia is home to the oldest Indigenous Black population in Canada. And the work you folks are doing to shed light on that is imperative because it's folks like you that keep the stories going, right? And and with that being said, a lot of our traditions as Africans is through word of mouth. It's through storytelling. And I think we mentioned it earlier about the griot, yes. the ancient African storyteller that kept traditions alive through word of mouth. Mm-hmm. So kudos to you guys. Well, thank you for that. So <laughs> we're talking about your background growing up in the pier. How has this influenced your research? Oh, it's had an immense impact on my work. So as you know, I'm a diversity and inclusion and equity consultant. I've lived in this space for many years as a person of color, working in predominantly Eurocentric organizations, experiencing racism and and trying to tame my inner talk and how, how to deal with it, right? And instead of getting mad, I just got educated. And I feel like that's the best tool to use because you know, if we get mad, boy, they're labeling us right away as the angry black man. That is that is very yeah. powerful. Yeah, I mean, and it's something we all have to do because that's how you fight fire. With fire is is through education. It's not through getting mad or angry because that's what folks expect. Yep. From us. You know what I'm saying? That's what they expect. As soon as that happens, you're labeled. That's right, right. It's like a female in the workplace. If she gets a little passionate, um. And, and raises her voice, she's perceived as an angry woman or what's her problem? You know, yeah. it's like, oh, what, she can't have passion? You know what I'm trying to say? It's, and it's the same with us. So back that passion up with facts. Absolutely. Kind of Absolutely. And so that's kind of how my journey started was just self-development and just having a, a real interest in others and wanting to help others. Because when you know what it's like to feel marginalized, you want to do your best to, to help others <laughs> with that. You know what I'm trying to say? Yes. And it, it takes, takes self-work. And so that's kind of... Um, it's kind of where I'm at. What what happened last week? What did Barb say about that? So, and this kind of led to one question I had for her about, you know, visible minorities and things of, things of that nature. And I said, we should have a separate group. And she's like, absolutely. <laughs> you know, we, we are, and our experience is different because we're indigenous to the land yeah. here. And you know what that, and that's our experience, right? The trouble is, you know, whether you're from Zimbabwe Barbados, Vancouver Island, or or Tallahassee, you're still black. 
You know what I'm trying to say? And, yep. and we're perceived, we're placed in that box regardless. regardless. Um, so yes, we have our own individual lived experiences, but on the outside, as we make our way through society, unfortunately, we're all grouped into, herded into one box and, and labeled as black. <laughs> so, you know, one thing I, I wanted to talk about, and this is, I may be jumping around a little bit, but you may be able to tie this into how does that affect your mental health? Excellent question. So ask me a couple years ago, and I'd say it was like carrying around a knapsack full of rocks, right? Mm. It was heavy. It was it was cumbersome. Um, and it was always on my mind. But the shift took place when I realized when it became more educated, especially around emotional intelligence, and how when a person acts a certain way, it's not necessarily a reflection of you, it's a reflection of them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm trying mm-hmm. to say? Yep. And so when I realized that everybody's got something that they're going through, and yes, some people are very overt and opinionated in their approach, but I almost approach that with grace right now. And I say, you know what, man, for someone to feel like that, I wonder what's going on with them. You know what I'm saying? Because if I took what everybody said personal and labeled myself as other people saw me, man, it'd be a tough go. You know what I'm trying to say? It would be. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just realized I almost treat everyone with grace, even like your hardcore uh, right wingers. It's like, let me learn more. And I know Absolutely. that sounds weird. I know that sounds weird, but it's like, well, let me learn more. You justify to me why you feel the way you do. And then we can have a conversation. And here's the, here's the, the, the key thing is that people don't know what they don't know. They really don't know what they don't know. And if someone wants to listen to Fox News and come at me and think they're all educated, hey, let's have a conversation. Because we all know that media is biased, right? Yeah. And so for some people, that's their only source of education is through that. It's, it's entertainment. That that's right. <laughs> that's and they right. know that, right? That's why it's, you know, that's why. It, that's how they get people coming back. That's how they get them but coming I, back. I'll, I'll tell you something to really pay attention to. With, watch how systemic racism is packaged whether it's through the media, whether it's through laws and policies, uh-huh. um, you know, it, it lives and breathes in everything we do. Well, you said it. It's like headlines on newspapers, right? It's like the black guy, he's angry black. He's a thug. Hmm. If there's a white guy, it's a, you know, he's he's it's minimized to the point yeah, where, so, you know, he's a good guy. <laughs> so you're actually defining a term and it's called cultural messaging. What messaging do folks receive from media, print, music of us, right? And yeah. and if you really pay attention to how we're portrayed, man, you yo, you watch the first forty eight. Everyone see that show on A and E? That's yeah. like cultural genocide, man. You know what I'm <laughs> that saying? That is true. Well, and so watch know, how it's packaged because it's it's right in our face. So just picking up on this theme about diversity, kind of your research. How important is it right now to have that conversation around diversity and inclusion? Oh, man, I think that's super important on many fronts. I think, one, we have to realize that the world is becoming more diverse, not only with globalization and people moving from country to country, but through birth rates. You know, there's a lot of mixed marriages and people are looking different, right? People are looking different. And so the conversation is starting to land on more ears because our population is becoming more diverse. And so the, the reason I think diversity and inclusion is important is because it sets the context and how to really not only treat one another, but how you present yourself and how you view the world. So like in the workplace, for example, I always liken diversity as like the mix of individuals. You know, you have male, female, 
black, white, gay, straight, whatever the case may be. But inclusion's a bit different. Inclusion to me is like, how do you leverage those individuals to get the best out of them, the best results, the best workplace interactions? And for most companies, it's the bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. And so as someone who's immersed in the, the field, for me, it's really about my lens and how I view the world. And so for me, like, because I have children and I have people around me that I love and then I'm, I'm sensitive, there's a situation, I tend to look through the world through a different lens, right? And I'll give you a, a classic example. So normally when things go sideways in the workplace and it's normally, there's normally a high level of, of stress or anger or miscommunication or whatever. And so my classic story of how to get over myself is when I'm driving to work in the morning and I'm late because I was doing the kid's hair or trying to get their breakfast or whatever. And I'm, I'm driving down the street and there's someone in front of me and they're going like half the speed limit. And I start hitting the steering wheel like, come on, what's going on? Like, I'm ready to like pass them on a, you know, on a single road rage. Um, and I'm like, road rage, man, road rage. And I'm like, I'm like, man, these old people can't drive. Like, what the hell is going on with these old people? And then I finally pass him and I realize it's a, it's a middle-aged man just taking his time. But in my yep. head, my bias said, old person, yes. you know yeah. what I'm trying to say? And yeah. so what I've learned is like, Brad, Give yourself a little bit of grace here, buddy. Your biases are coming up to the yep. surface. And the more you practice that, like understanding and recognizing your biases, the more you create that neural pathway of grace towards others. We got that. The more you understand and recognize your biases, the better your perspective is going to be. 100%. Because you give people the opportunity to be people. Yeah. Right? You, you understand that you're dealing with another human being, not somebody that you're racially profiling or gender profiling not what you see on tv not what you see on tv yeah, that's right or not what music tells you not what the media tells you it's like they are a living being right and just because they look like this or they practice this religion or they eat this food doesn't mean they are what absolutely. you think they are absolutely yeah you know so true we understand from like the discussion we had that you know there's been an outward migration and, and with that the community would change right so given those changes, what is Whitney Pierre like today? Well, <laughs> talking about bias. I mean, for me, I love I love Whitney Pierre, man. Because, you know, I feel like it's like a, it still has that blue collar backbone. Okay. You know, that blue collar backbone where, you know, everybody's working hard, partying hard when they get the chance. But we have a long legacy mm -hmm. of people that came from, from Whitney Pierre. Um, and a lot of people don't know this, like, you know, well, Mayor Francis, people know my man who's a lieutenant governor, was a lieutenant governor. Right. But we have uh, Godfrey Cambridge, um, who was an American stand-up comic and actor. So we work with like Bill Cosby, mm -hmm. um, Dick Gregory, folks like that. We have uh, Valerie Miller, who is a judge um, who sits on the Supreme Court of Canada or sorry, the Tax Court of Canada. We had uh, Isaac Phils, who was a Canadian steel worker and the first black man to receive the Order of Canada. Uh, we just lost uh, Clotilda Douglas Yakmanchuk, who was a Canadian nurse. Uh, she was the first African-Canadian to graduate from the Nova Scotia Hospital School of Nursing and the first black president of the Registered Nurses Association of Nova Scotia. Wow. And we even had, you know, Calvin Ruck, who was an anti-racism activist and Calvin, a member yeah. of the Senate of Canada. And he was born here in the pier, right? And his parents were uh, immigrants to Canada from Barbados. Wow. 
So we have a long lineage of, 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 um, of greatness in the pair. And so for me, I'm standing on their shoulders, right? I love that. I understand uh, where I come from. I understand the work that was done before me. So when I put myself out there in these public spaces and have these conversations, I have no fear. Um, the only, it's okay to mess up. It's okay to be wrong. It's okay to do this, do that. But when I understand the work that was done before me and the work before them, mm-hmm. right? Um, it just gives you that internal strength to, to, to be fearless. Right. That's not about perfection. It's about progression. And That's right. Continue to build, right? That's right. And listen, there's people out there watching us who are saying, wow, like they had the fortitude or the gall or, or the guts to do this kind I of work, right? that, man. Um, and that's, that's big, man. Like eyes are, eyes are on us. And, and, you know, with that mindset, it's going to propel us to do great things. Yep. That's it. Brad, thank you very much for like just showing up and showing out for, uh, you know, the community there in Whitney Pier. Uh, I thank you for being a part of our journey, right? Like, I think that's one of the foundational things, uh, that we appreciate and hopefully you can continue to be a part of that as we move forward. All right, gentlemen. And remember this. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. That's awesome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Loyalist Connections podcast. This episode was produced by your hosts, myself, Luis Gabriel Downey. And Sean Smith with support from Podstarter. Also, we want to give a special shout out to Grace McNutt, who patiently endured our stressful antics and helped us find our voices through this journey special thanks for the support from community partners the black cultural center and the black loyalist heritage center and society please visit these historical museums for more information on the community and so much more we can't forget to thank our special guests for their time and sharing their community connections and shedding light on this vital element of our history of the initial settlers your lived experiences and contributions on the history of Whitney Pier is helping build a better picture of what life is like for our ancestors and fill gaps in our understanding of the lasting legacy of African Nova Scotian and more broadly Canadian history. Bradley Shepard's contributions to our history will be forever documented for generations to come as we continue on our journey of building a digital heritage repository of our collective history. Until the next episode, listen, like, follow and share Loyalist Connection podcast and all your favorite platforms and make sure to follow us on Instagram at Loyalist Connections Podcast. And for exclusive content, including access to unedited episodes, join the Loyalist Connections community on patreon.com. Until the next episode, stay connected. <laughs>